Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the specialist digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Now, for long-time listeners, you will probably already know who we are. You may have even heard one of our ads on a previous episode of this podcast. But for those of you who don't, here is a short introduction. At Create Engage, we help you create an effective marketing strategy for your consultancy, a strategy that will resonate with your target clients. And then we support you by delivering the campaigns you need to turn that strategy into a reality helping you to build your brand, raise your profile with your prospective clients, and ultimately generate return on investment from your marketing activity. Now, I could tell you about many of the great clients that we work with and the results we've delivered for them. But instead, I'm going to do something much more powerful and something that I would recommend you do for your own marketing. I'm going to let our clients do the talking for us. If you are currently thinking about marketing for your consultancy, you're going to want to listen to this. Create Engage started the process for us. They managed it end to end. They came up with some really creative ideas and we were really happy with the work that they did, which meant that we could just focus on running the business. Not only did we start conversations with clients that we hadn't spoken to before, but also there was tangible return on investment by some work that we were given. They've helped right from the initial shaping of the idea through to helping us work out what our end goal was. They've supported us with the visual identity and our positioning of the brand. We've had an immediate expansion of our network and and have initiated a raft of new conversations with owners, CEOs in in target client organisations and has led to us winning new projects already. One of the greatest compliments, I guess, is that one of our competitors even said that uh, they really like what we're doing with marketing. They wish they could be doing something as good. So from our perspective, we couldn't recommend Create Engage any more than this. I would certainly recommend Create Engage if you're a consulting firm. They really understand consultancies and the sort of challenges we face. And, uh, you know, I don't think you're going to get much better marketing anywhere else. So I wouldn't hesitate to recommend Create Engage. They did a really good job for us. So if you're looking for an agency that can help you achieve the results that our clients just described, then head to our website createengage.co.uk where you can find out more about how we support consulting firms like you. You can download our latest ebook and you can get in touch to talk about how we can help you take your consultancy to the next level through digital marketing. Hi and welcome to today's episode of Climate Consulting. In this one I chat to Stefan H. Bauer, managing partner at H&Z. Having started his career at Siemens, it wasn't long before Stefan realized that life in a big multinational wasn't for him. And at just 24, he made the leap to what was then a small boutique firm with only eight people. Since then, H&Z Group has grown a lot and is now one of the 100 best employers in Germany. At H&Z, Stefan's career took a rapid upwards trajectory and he rose through the ranks from analyst through to partner before being made managing partner in 2008. That was 15 years ago, and since then, the firm has enjoyed phenomenal success, growing significantly and becoming a key member of the leading European-wide consulting group, the Transformation Alliance, something we explore in today's episode. In this one, we delve into some fascinating areas, including Stefan's head-heart-hand approach to consulting. We talk about what great consulting leaders have in common with movie directors. We explore the importance of knowing when to step back and give up the sugar as you progress into senior leadership. And 
We also look at why passion is one of the non-negotiables if you want to build an awesome consulting career. I really enjoyed this conversation with Stefan. We covered a whole host of topics and it was fantastic to get his perspective. If you are just starting out on your consulting journey or maybe thinking of making the leap from a big multinational to a boutique, I know that you are going to get a ton from what Stefan has to share in this one. So with the intro over, all that's left to say is please enjoy today's episode of Climbing Consulting with Stefan H. Bar. Stefan, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Nick, for having me. Well, I'm very much looking forward to this conversation, not least because I know we have friends in, in common in Ollie and the team at Q5, which we'll, we will come on to later with the Transformation Alliance. But so I don't jump too far ahead, Stefan, it would be great if you could, for our listeners, give a bit of background on who you are and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, well, basically, I'm a consulting dinosaur. I'm in the industry now for 23 years, but as I'm Austrian, I studied in Innsbruck in the Alps and also in the United States. Uh, political science and economics. And after that, I started with Siemens, so large multinational corporation based in Munich, but soon figured that the too large corporation that that's not how I feel I can have impact. And I joined at that time Boutique Consultancy, which today is Agency Group. And at that time was like eight crazy people. And I thought, okay, well, I'm 24. So what can go wrong if it doesn't work out? And in three years from now, I'm somewhere else. And in 10 years, nobody will ask what I've done there. And if it works out, that's great. And fortunately, it worked out. So I stayed there. I moved through all the ranks from what we would call analyst today, uh, project or consultant, project manager, senior project manager, associate partner, partner. And from 2008 on, I'm managing partner now. And the good thing about the small consultancy in the beginning is that you very soon get a lot of responsibility, not just because people trust in you, but they don't have a lot of alternatives and choices. And so for me, it was really boosted my learning experiences in consulting. Fantastic. Well, there's a lot in there, Stefan, for us to talk about. And I know we're going to dive into quite a bit of it today. I think we want to start with actually, you mentioned you know, you've been managing partners since 2008, and a lot has happened for the firm. A lot's happened in the the world during that time, and we'll come on to a lot of it. And it was actually something that caught my eye on your LinkedIn profile, because I always like to do a bit of research on my guests ahead of these, you know, your LinkedIn, all of your content. And there was a quote you had, and I'll, I'll, I hope I'm getting it right, head, heart, and hand are the core to great professional services, and they're the basis for an awesome consulting job. I mean, very few consultants who use the word awesome, which I really like, Stefan. But could you explain what that means to you and, and why it's been so important in you know, how you and the firm have grown? Well, let's put it this way. I think in anything we do or what a professional does, you want to do not just a job, you want to do an awesome job. And in that sense, obviously for me, it's consulting. But I think if I was a lumberjack, I also wanted to do an awesome lumberjack job, so to speak. So for me, it's just the self-understanding. And of course, not every day you do an awesome job, but every day it should be your inspiration to be the best version of yourself. And that's kind of behind that quote. And where head, heart and hand? I understand in the lumberjack job that, that yeah, yeah, yeah. And how, how that plays in? Well, head, heart, hand is something, uh, actually, the original concept is from Pestalozzi, but you also see that uh, in, uh, for example, in, in Buddhism. So it's, it's mind, body, and soul, so to speak. So it's whatever you look at, and especially also in consulting, it's those three elements you need to take into consideration. So head meaning 
Of course, we need to think a lot in consulting. Our solutions need to be well thought through and not just like the first idea that pops up in your mind. But then you also need, so you need head, but you also need heart because without heart, there is no inspiration. There is no great concept that materializes if there isn't people that have some fire in that and and that see, okay, this is now what we need to make happen. So you need a lot of heart and inspiration or as we say, we call it sparking enthusiasm in our uh, in our consulting job. And you, of course, you need hand. It's basically it's shaping change. Without hand, nothing will happen. So you have can have great ideas and everybody can be on fire about it. But if it's not happening, it's not happening. So in the end, good consulting is always about starting with an idea where you want to go, but completing it in the end. Only this finishes the job. That makes a lot of sense, Stefan, and, and actually quite nicely takes me on to something I wanted to talk to you about. And, and if the frame isn't right, tell me, but something when we caught up ahead of this interview, you mentioned around actually how your leadership style has evolved over that time you've been managing partner. You know, you've, my maths should be better, but we're coming on to sort of 15 years. Like That's a long period to be managing partner and the firm's grown a lot. And you mentioned actually as you grow as a leader, your leadership has to evolve or the firm doesn't. You know, a firm is a kind of a function of the leaders within it. And I'd love to get your perspective on how you've developed or how you advise others to develop and whether it's along those head, heart and hand lines or if there's something else that they should be sort of focusing on. Well, I guess it's two questions in the end. So head, heart, hand, or uh, you can also, of course, you can put the concept of leadership around that. I guess it also translates into what every good or great leader needs. So of course you need to have a vision. So that's that's the head where you want to go or what you want to develop, but you need to bring people behind it. Otherwise you, you can't do it alone. You will never be able to do it alone. And the larger the firm, the more important it is to get all the people behind it. So that's the heart, what the heart is for. But the hand finally is to make it happen. If it's not happening, you can't blame the team. It's you. So you need to make sure that in the end it happens. And that everybody in the company is able to achieve what you together envisioned up front. So I guess this is one thing. The, the other question was, how did my leadership style evolve over time? And I guess this is more around, probably you could compare it to an opera house or the movies industry. So, I mean, in the beginning, you start as, well, first you start in consulting more as, as, the, as the, how, how do you call these guys that are basically just there to fill the room or you need you need a crowd of people so you have uh, i guess an, an extra or a i think filler is probably a good word stand in one of the two so it's one of the minor jobs obviously and then you move up and then you become one of the bigger players or you become the center player on stage but uh, the larger the company grows the more you need to step back from there and you become more of a director you need you need to make sure that that your set of stars that they're positioned in the right way, that everybody plays the role he's best at, and you need to develop them. And the company can only grow if these people grow. So it's no longer your job. If you're in a project, you probably you can, you can turn it around. If there is a five, 10 people project, your, the impact you're having as a person can be really great. But if it's a company with several hundred people, you need to make sure that you have plenty of people out there that are able to step in in your role, the role you had before, and you're more becoming more of a director, so to speak. I guess it's good from time to time to go back on stage, just for a small gig, so to speak, to 
really engage with the audience and, and, and in, in translate it, engaging with clients and, and see how they perceive the company, et cetera. But obviously, the, most of the 80% of your time is dedicated to working on the system and not just being part of the system. I, I love the metaphor, Stefan. I, I try my best with metaphors. Outside of sport, I'm not great, so I'll, but I'll run yeah, on. I'm terrible at one. sports and, and football. <laughs> that's probably in soccer. That's probably why I need to come up with others. I, well, I, I love yours. Let, let's stick with the film or the, the play. And we'll stick with you for now. How did you know the point at which to change roles? Because, you know, to your point, in a smaller firm, you could be that star actor and actually you're really good at that. Everyone loves it. And maybe you don't need a big director, but actually at some point, to be that bigger firm, you need that extra. How, how did you know those times when, you know, you needed to make those changes to your approach to help, I guess, make that production bigger? I guess there is a, there is a push and a pull effect to it. So one is really like, uh, I would say the push effect is more when the company develops over time and, and you're entering new roles. or so for example, the changing into a managing partner role was one of these pivotal moments where I said, okay, now how do I need to change what I'm doing? Where do I need to focus my time on? Now, I'm not so good at details. So other people probably would just write down for a week their calendar, what they're doing every 15 minutes and then do it very analytically. But I did it more or less by judgment or gut feeling. And it always helped me to recalibrate myself. Am I dedicating enough time to the right pockets of time I, I have available? And I love to do client work. So for me, it was rather I had to give up partly on that to free up time for other stuff. And of course, I brought in other partners with clients. I looked, where is there a match? Where can I basically, where can I hand over the contact? But it's very often more than just a contact. It's a professional friendship, so to speak. So that's not always working. But, but there is this push effect. So you need to really be conscious about this. And then there is also a pull effect, a remarkable and I encountered this when I, I did a workshop for a very large client, 50 people, huge workshop from top management, one board member up to just, it was basically any roles in the organization were present. So 50 people out of 16,000. And I had a young colleague of mine at that time. She's partner now. She was project manager there. And she did just such an amazing job that I figured... Well, okay, I'm 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 standing here now because of my role. But in terms of competencies, it's clearly her field. She's the much better actor, so to speak. And now it's time probably to retreat a little bit. That was also another factor. So it's kind of, but it's fine. It goes along hand in hand. So it's it's great if there's new people that are even better than you. Yeah, I, I think some great factors in there, Stefan. And I, I'm going to try and keep with the, the metaphor as much as we can, because I I've spoken to quite a few people who, who run boutique consultancies, and particularly you, you mentioned, I know you weren't a partner then, but you joined H&M when there were sort of eight of you, so it's grown, you've been a, a pivotal part of that. For some, it can feel quite hard to step away from, like you said, those professional friendships, relationships, for two reasons. One, I guess, you know, there's, there is a connection. The other side is, well, you have a lot of that corporate knowledge. So, there, you know, you know what so-and-so at that organization wants and needs. I'm asking this more for listeners who are sort of dealing with this. How did you get comfortable with that? Or how do you advise, you know, more junior partners at H&Z to get comfortable with it? Because of things that hold people back, I think that can sometimes be one of almost not wanting to, you know, to use your metaphor, leave center stage and move up to being the director because they like the plaudits, they like being 
you know, that front of the, the show. How, how have you managed that? How do you advise people to? I guess it's like getting away from sugar. So you can't, of course, you can't quit it all at once and say, I'm not going to eat sugar anymore. It's just you need to reduce the doses. And you need to accept. And, and this is also something, in the end, it's not nice for your ego. Because there is, uh, but you're, you're basically, you're giving away stuff in the near term for the benefit in the long term. Because that's the only way you can sustain in the role. I mean, we have seen this also in the German consulting market. There is many companies that are still run by 70-year-olds or they, they don't manage this transition well. And in the end, they, they just fail and they, they evaporate, so to speak. So reducing it to really the core relationships you have and giving up on other relationships. Although, or taking into account that for some of those people, you might be a disappointment. Because you don't call them back. It's your colleague calling them back. Or, uh, so it's really, it's, so to speak, it's a strategic move. Sometimes it plays out very natural, but sometimes it's also, uh, it's also around really, yeah, taking a step back. And, and not, and of course, every, because we're, we're in this profession because we laugh if somebody asks us for advice. And it's not always nice or easy then to tell somebody else to please go back to this person and write this person, sorry, I'm not available this week. I'm pretty busy, but I have my colleague XY that is free to or happy to come back to you. I really like that point. And, and the example of sugar, I think is quite a good one because you're right. As you grow through your career, you like being the advisor. You like being the person people pick up the phone to. And actually, as you make that step, or wherever in in your sort of consulting journey, you have to give something something back or sort of hand something down. And I guess this is where your push and pull come together as well, because you can only hand off that relationship and say, speak to my colleague. If your colleague is of the sort of skill set and experience to do that, you know, you mentioned your your colleague with the the workshop. But I think those are really interesting points together. And it comes back to what you mentioned earlier around that gut feeling of just what I need to be focusing on. And I guess it's the question that comes before the how is, when did you know it was right to start doing that? What was it that told you? Is it you were just working too many hours? Is it you weren't getting to your strategic priorities? What told you or what do you sort of get people to look out for to say, maybe you should start handing some of this over? Well, I'd say it's, there is not this, this one point in time. It's like, um, not sure if it's a good example, but it's like, when is the right time that you, that you want to get kids? So obviously you need to have the right partner, but, but what is the exact timing? What is the determining factor? And so there can be many factors at once. Now, if it's your aspiration, then you know sooner or later you need to do it. And the same, I guess, is here. If it's your aspiration to grow the company, then you know there comes this time when you need to step back and it, you cannot do this too long because then you don't give others enough room to grow. And if you miss that point, you end up with 70 and, and the company hasn't grown too much. Yeah. And as someone who has an 18-month-old, uh, or just, just a little younger than 18-month-old, but, but he's an 18-month-old child, I, I know exactly what you mean around the, um, yeah, when is right to have kids. I take the point as well around actually you kind of feel that in your journey. And thinking actually for those who are maybe below partners, so, so you know some of those actors, the kind of extras, they've got a couple of lines, et cetera. Do you find from all of the people you know you've worked with and your team have worked with, is there a common step that people have challenges with that sort of push pull with that giving things up? Because at every stage, you know, if you move from an extra to saying one line to saying five lines, like, you've always got to hand things off. 
And I know from when I was in consulting, I think particularly when you're delivering work, that can feel very challenging because, you know, you mentioned it's sort of you're not, you know, a details person. I'm not the most detailed person either, Stefan, but our industry is very detailed. You know, boxes have got to be aligned, et cetera. Some people can find that hard to hand off. Have you found there's sort of commonalities or common challenges people face at particular points? And, and where do you see those most prevalent? Well, I guess uh, consulting is a very linear career until you become partner. Because the, the skills you develop as a young analyst, of course, let's put it this way, you start with with analytic skills, and of course, you need to be able to storytell and, and uh, draw the proper slides, and how do, do you display it? So all these basics. And, and this is something you need basically until the end of your career. It's just you have different information available, and somebody else then does the, the number crunching for you. But this is something you always need. So it's like the base load. On top come the leadership skills. So when, you, when you're leading a team, first a client, then you're leading your own team, so that's the next step. And I guess already with, with those leadership skills or challenges as a project manager, you already see you cannot do everything yourself. So there is a colleague and you know exactly how you would do it, but you can first give advice. You can tell him how you would do it, but you are not able to do it anymore. Just physically, your, your day only has 24 hours. So this there you already gives something up. And then the next is, I guess, when you really, of course, the projects become larger and larger, but when you become partner. So there is also, there is a, increasing more a shift between the sales job you're doing and the delivery job you're doing. And you're much re more relying on your team, obviously. So of course you read through the steering committee or you design the, the story around the steering committee, but you already give up a lot. And of course you can, and I see this with colleagues, you can also control this on a detailed level, like daily updates, etc. But it just or decreases your ability to run many projects at the same time. So the deeper you go, the less you can do in total business volume. And that's never good. As a partner, it, your, your strength depends on the business volume you bring to the table. And not just how smart you are. We're all smart people. But how many clients do you have behind you? We always compare it to a picnic or a dinner party. Now, if you just join up with three, four tomatoes, you probably don't have the same say in the partner meeting than the other guy with like the five pound ham. And this is something that differs completely when you, when you have your standard career from, from analyst towards project manager. So sales is then a completely new skill. So you need to give up more on the delivery piece. And of course, then later on, if the company grows, if you want to grow, if you want to be the one that runs a group of partners, then you have to give up even more. And as client work, it's you don't read any steering committee anymore before you go there. You just get the briefing, what is important, what do you need to look at, but you don't look for typos. And if you still do that, it will limit your growth and especially that of the company. I like the food metaphor because I think it does bring it into very sharp focus. And you know, that point around you have to keep, yeah, as you you progress and you build the company, you have to hand things off. Or, you know, you gave that example of the, the sort of 70-year-old with the, you know, the smaller firm that because they haven't, they've, they've limited, you know, they only have 24 hours in the day. They've limited that. I hadn't actually planned on talking about it, but you, you made a point there around that sales piece being that huge shift. How do you find people take to that? And, and how do you help people to sort of prepare for that? Because like you say, with such a linear career path in consulting, 
the first you know, up to partner is very grade specific. And yes, there's some sales piece, but you make partner by bringing food to the picnic, not just eating what's there. How do you advise people on that shift? Because that's push-pull, but it's also a new skill set. We try to, um, and we're not perfect there, but uh, not sure who is. We try to very early incentivize them on sales. In terms of it's more like, I would say, opportunity sniffing. It's not like they don't need to do the sales pitch as a consultant or something like that, but just if they see opportunities that evolve, if they... Uh, work in one department and over the over a coffee talk with the other department that there is something interesting coming up and then they they bring the partner behind it and say well could be good if we just exchange probably just over a coffee so to get the first foot in the door this is something we incentivize to and it's more or less obviously there is some some financial benefits but it's also to stimulate the thinking in that way because in the past we've not always had that and so this is something uh, we, we, we really look for. We, we do intend to have regular meetings in, in especially projects running for a longer period of time, like once a quarter, where we talk about cross opportunities or cross selling. That what is next to our project or somewhere else in the company they've heard of because we have access to decision makers. So what could we bring to their table? Without really over, I mean, nobody wants a consultant that on day two comes in and says, well, by the way, great project we're doing here, but I have an idea for another one. So, I mean, it, it always takes some, takes some balance on that. And then, of course, we, we do have special trainings around sales, around sales techniques, around motivation behind it. But it's always, it's always a huge shift. And for some, it is even tough to mention the word sales. So that they're really in sales now and they're selling a service or a product. So for them, it's not their understanding when they join consultancy. They're problem solvers. Well, the problem now is something else. You have the picnic and you need to bring food. So that's the problem now. And it's not the intellectual developing the next target operating model or whatsoever. So that's, that is a huge shift. And we talk about it. I guess this is also important because we, that's, that's our learning. We talk about it with partner aspirants and, and, or even those that only in three, four years from now, um, we see they have the potential. We talk about it. But there is also another thing. So I've seen both. I've seen partners that, that really went the hard way and do the hard piece of selling with really uh, having their target list, following up closely and really being persistent, basically on Excel. And I have the others that just sell over lunch or dinner. And this is something you either have the passion for and the talent, which kind of goes the same way. So if you have the passion, you also have the talent or the other way around. So for them, it's much easier. But in the end, both types make a good combination. I think a lot in there, Stefan, and... and that point around actually starting to speak to those sort of aspiring partners early about this and, and also building it in. I like what you said around the incentive approach. Am I, and if you can't share this, don't worry, but am I right to refer there's a, almost a reward if you refer an opportunity in that turns into something? I, it's actually, we say 1% of the sales volume, of the project volume, is pocketed by basically the, the consultant or project manager. It's not the partners, they're, they're out of this mm. scheme if they have a, a unique role in this. And so, for example, establishing the contact is unique because otherwise we would not have heard of it. And I like the framing of unique role because I infer there that 
people can be rewarded along that sales journey. So it's not purely the introducer. Someone might do something in that sales part of that journey as well, which I guess to your point around how sales progress, sometimes it's the introduction that's key. Sometimes it's other aspects of, of that journey and, and what you're doing as well. I think for anyone listening, that's a really nice, I guess, way of getting people involved early so they can see that side of consulting because you're right. Up until partner, you're kind of just eating at the picnic or figuring out how to lay the table. After that, it's all about who gets that food. And, and that's a real big shift. So no, really, really like that, Stefan. I'm keen for us because you've started to tease some of them, move on to sort of the culture at H&Z. There's one other question I just wanted to ask about your leadership style. And just mainly because quite honestly, it echoes with things that I think, which is you talk about, again, something at the end of your LinkedIn. You've talked about being awesome. You also talk about having fun at work. And I think it's a really poignant thing to talk about because consulting in it as a career, some people have loads of fun doing. I think some people, because it pays very well, can get stuck and get stuck in a career that they they may not say they dislike, but would they say they love? It's more of a and, job. Exactly. And I'd, I'd just love your take on, I guess, why you love consulting and yeah, how you also keep checking in to make sure you still love it. So anyone listening who's thinking the same can kind of use those same techniques. It's a good question. Um, I'm not sure if there is techniques behind it. I mean, in the end, consulting for me is more like a calling. But it's, this has been clear after I... Or, and because exactly because of that, I left Siemens because it was very well paid and it was a very nice corporate job. And I would have, I'm sure I have made a very nice corporate career, but it just didn't feel right. It was like, and I even worked much less because you work 40 hours only or 38.5. In the beginning, you're not allowed to work more, but it was just, it was just a job. And, and working as a consultant, this is more like a calling to me. Because you're, I mean, you're, you're out there, you're helping your clients in the, in the problems they have. Um, and I guess this is, this is uh, in, in, many, in many service, professional service jobs, you have something like that. And yes, I also know these people that are, are in for the money, but they don't, don't do it with a lot of passion. And my thinking around that is you can only be good at something or you can only do an awesome job if it's more of a calling. And if it doesn't feel the right thing, then uh, my advice would be, most important of all, take time off. Take off two, three, four months, travel the globe, think about it. And if you then want to come back, then it's probably the right thing. And if you want to do something else, that's good as well. But never just do it for the money because that's, I, I would see this just as too painful. I love that advice, Stefan, of, of that traveling the world. I, I think I know the answer, but so that I don't put words in your mouth. Why go and travel the world? Why not just change jobs or go and do a master's or a, an MBA? Well, let's put it this way. Doing, doing a master's or an MBA is kind of like seeing the world just from a different perspective. So I, my, my advice is just getting out of this, reflecting. And this also, if you're at the university for a year, complete different environment, you need to reflect on your life and what you've been doing, if this is the right thing, if this is what you love. And, and, and that's what I mean by that. So getting out of what you have, just switching jobs could, without really reflecting much, that could bring you in a, in a position that probably some of the stuff you did, you just didn't like because it was consulting, but probably it's something else 
you don't like about yourself or in the interaction with people, etc. And I guess if you really have time off, it's like an onion. You can get to the inner core of this onion and see, okay, what is it about? What do you want? What's what's your purpose, so to speak? I think great, great advice. I'm glad I clarified as well, Stefan, because because I, I agree with you. I think that taking time out, reflecting just a different context is really important. I've had other guests who've said the same for them, themselves of just not being in that world of consulting. And, and to your point, to our sort of metaphor earlier, not being on stage, sitting in the audience for a little bit and thinking about what are you liking, what aren't you on that you see, I think becomes really powerful because yeah, life is long and doing something you aren't really passionate about for a, quite a big part of your life doesn't sound like a fun way to live. Yeah, and there might be a point of no return. So if you're too long in consulting and you didn't get a way out, then the job offerings you're facing are probably not not what you what you expect. So and you just might be stuck in there until retirement. So well, and, and your point you made as well that if you actually do go out and reflect, that doesn't stop you going back to consulting because you you may decide actually it was the right firm, it was the right role, or it's you know, one of those was the problem for you. And I think that's a big thing. Likewise, the world changes. You know, we'll, we'll talk more about sort of the continental European market shortly. But you think about consulting before COVID, at least here in the UK, there's a lot of travel. Now with COVID and the sort of changes, it's a lot more of a hybrid career, which again, for some people might be a better working balance. Ironically, for some, they might hate that because they like the travel. They loved, you know, problem solving with clients. So I think Keeping mindful of, like you say, what you want is a really important thing. So I think, Stefan, we, we've teased some of this, but I'm keen to actually go on to H&Z and, and particularly culture, because I think we've, we've talked a lot about your leadership and, and your approach. And obviously, leadership and culture kind of work hand in hand. Some of that's shaped by you and your leadership team, but some of you and your leadership team shaped by that culture. And I want to start with, just because it, it sort of made me smile when you said it last time, that H&Z is an asshole-free zone. and I guess, to kick us off, what is an asshole in a consulting context? And why have you been really focused on making sure there aren't any at H&Z? Well, uh, using, using the A word, I guess in a consulting context, what we encountered, it's, you could also say toxic people that work a lot with elbows, that uh, basically they uh, use a lot the I word. I did this. It's not, not so much about the V. It's, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't strengthen the point of narcissism, but that would be like the extremist uh, uh, version or most extreme version of, of an, an asshole, so to speak. But, but there is many, many in between. So the Simon Sinek actually shared this. The, the Marines use this. They look at their teams and say, okay, who are good performers and who have the trust of the team? So it's kind of a matrix. And if you're just a good or a great performer, if you perform top notch, but you don't have the trust of the team, you're out. And I guess that's pretty much it, because then you're better on your own, but you shouldn't work in a team. And usually at the client, we work in teams. So we need performing teams. We don't need, we don't need superheroes. We need, well, obviously plenty of heroes, but not the superheroes. So it's more the team needs to be strong, diverse and strong. And that's why it's so important to us. And besides that, let's put it this way, there is, uh, I, I guess, one indicator as well. Uh, if, if you have a company offsite, uh, a measurement for me is always anybody in the room and I'm ending up next to at the bar with, would I have a nice evening? Or is it just, damn, I need to get away here. 
and then there is something wrong. Well, I think they were the things I was probably expecting. I didn't expect the Simon Sinek matrix. I really like that Marines example, by the way, because there is an interesting challenge in consulting, but in all high-performing industries and, and professional services. And this might not have been tested at H and Z, but I, I'm curious, have you ever had a challenge where you have one of those top performers, but they aren't trusted by the team? Because I think that must be the hardest. Where someone is that sort of toxic person and they're not a top performer, that's easy. Have you ever had that challenge where they are and how have you dealt with it? Well, actually, sometimes you don't see it right away in the beginning. But with hindsight, you say, yeah, actually, the signs were all there. You just didn't want to see them. And we had one colleague. We had to take one very prominent colleague because he was a very senior guy and very also very knowledgeable and very well respected by the client. But we figured, and in the end, we, you just, you just okay, you see there is a problem. Then you look for the evidence. And if there is one or two cases, then that's it. So it's, it's kind of, it's, it's gradual. We've also had the, uh, another version where we, actually this guy was just supposed to start, went with us on the offside. And at four in the morning at the bar, we decided, okay, it's not working with him. Just by what he was telling at that time. Obviously, we all had a few chin tonics, but it also it's also a mirror for character. That is good going being let go before you start. But I, I do I do think you're quite right. That kind of test of company, you know, socials or activity of those are very quickly when you you see is someone right the right fit. And I, I guess for anyone's listening's benefit, I'll ask this. I assume that doesn't mean you have to get on in, in terms of, you know, you both have the same hobbies, you, you both love plays or art. It's much more culturally of, like you say, could could we have a conversation? Would I be happy sitting next to them? And Yeah, is it is it just, is it a nice, interesting person? And, and what's, what's kind of, yeah. It was, um, it's funny, the, the firm I used to work with, and, and we now have it as well, so I'm letting this slip for anyone who applies for a role with us, but we have a coffee in our recruitment process, which is very much intended for that same reason. And as I say, the firm I work for, I stole this from, because, yeah, if you, you have a coffee with someone, you, you get a good feel. If they don't fit on best behavior, how are they going to be on worst behavior? Yeah, and what do they talk about? What Let, let them come. What do they talk about? And what would they talk next to there? We have, we have uh, in our recruiting process, we have usually, it's based on uh, one interview upfront, but then four interviews on site. And there is always lunch in between. There's nobody from the recruiting team, but other colleagues. And then we see how they behave. And the one guy I talked about, he already behaved very bad at lunch, so we should have known. But that was when we were smaller as a company. I guess we've, we've uh, added some proficiency there. Well, I, I love the lunch example, by the way. Also, for just a side note, Stefan, five five interviews. Is that commonplace in Germany? I think over here that would feel like a lot, but I'm curious if that's sort of commonplace. And if if so, or if not, why do you do it? I think it's uh, there is different formats. We know also from competitors, some run assessment centers, etc. I think it's at the upper end, mm. but we've made very good experiences with that. So, I mean, the first one the, is just an a motivational interview. And is it the right person that's done by uh, uh, chief HR? And then the four interviews are done by different colleagues. And the last one usually by, by a partner. And then the, the final one is by one of us managing partners. And it's, it is time, but it also gives you an impression of 
how people react after a day under pressure or in a day of pressure and how long can they perform because it doesn't help if their brain is boiled by noon. Um, we have client situations where you need to be on stage the whole day, not just in the morning. So that has been actually quite, we've been quite effective with that. I think it's a really interesting example, Stefan. And, and you know, for both the reasons you've highlighted there of, firstly, it's hard to pretend across four interviews or five interviews in one day. And actually, like you say as well, it is very easy to perform for an hour. It's quite difficult to perform for six hours, seven hours. And you actually get that feel when five or six of your colleagues have met one person and you've seen them from morning to noon, you you get a good sense. And I suspect they also get a good sense of you, don't you? Same, of course. It, it works both ways. So it's we, we don't put up a show for them. And of course, if you have more interviews and you have lunch and they see also other people uh, around uh, our locations, then they also get a good impression. Yeah, as, as I say, it's just I, I wanted to dig in because I hadn't. It, it's not sort of type of process I've seen used a lot over here in the UK. But I think for the reasons you say, I, I have read of similar being used in sort of Silicon Valley companies. I think quite a lot of the big tech firms do similar. And actually, for the reasons you've said that you get a real depth of someone and then you can decide because I think you can only learn so much in one hour. And actually, you know, some of those sort of asshole tests are not that easy to do in an hour because you need someone to say what they've done in an interview. But so it's hard to see, is it, you know, them self-promoting or is that how they are? So I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Is there anything else you've you know, con sort of built in, you mentioned sort of with hindsight, it's easy to spot those sort of, you know, those warning signs. Is there anything else you've built in either into the recruitment or in kind of your day-to-day -day processes to help you spot those instances of misalignment or misfit, particularly as you've grown? Because I imagine as you grow, well, you know, when you're eight people, it's easy to see who doesn't fit in. As you grow, it's harder. Let's put it this way. Obviously, we put a lot of emphasis in developing everybody. And so what we have is what we call a, a mentor. So, and, and any mentor has a max of six to eight mentees, what we call. So they meet regularly. They obviously have their performance discussion at the at year end, mid year and, and start of the year, but they also meet regularly. And we expect uh, our mentors to really be in contact with their mentees over, over the month, even if they don't have a, a joint project. Plus, for the youngsters, we have what we call a junior coach. So it's a buddy system, basically, with somebody in the profession for two, three years that gets them through like the, the basics. Okay, this program shut down. What do I do? Or can I invite my client for lunch or whatsoever? So all these things. So we have, you could say it's like a nerve system of personal interactions, which is not necessarily, I mean, some of that obviously is written down as process or as ex expectation, but it's more like the, the nerve system across the company where you really, you sense it. And then if there is more and more reactions towards a certain person, I mean, it's personal interaction. So there is always something that, that uh, can go wrong or not, not be too good, too nice, whatever. But if there is more and more evidence piling up and the second project and the third project, there is issues in the team, then there's definitely a red light. Yeah, no, it makes, makes a lot of sense, Stefan. I want to turn to quite a different part of your culture, but something else that I, I found interesting when we spoke ahead of this conversation, that, that was your ownership structure. Because as, as I understand it, and correct me if the facts are wrong, 
they about 40% of the sort of team own a share in H and Z. And actually, I think you said sort of anyone who's been there for a certain period of time, I think it was two to three years, can also sort of invest in the firm. So sort of that in a way, you know, they get to share in that upside and growth. It's quite unusual from the boutiques I've spoken to to have that. And I'd just love to maybe start with why did you and your fellow partners put that in place in the first instance? I mean, in uh, in 2013, we had a transition from there, like uh, three quarter of the or 70% of the company was still in the hand of the two founders. And we had the transition towards a broader transition into the partnership. And in this process, we also thought, well, why don't we just open it up for anybody in the company that wants to join? Obviously, with different limits or, or different weight. And it's not, we, we don't want, let's say, a young consultant that has a very nice inheritance by like half of the company just because he can. So that's not the intention. But but why they, why shouldn't they also buy a share and participate in the growth of HNZ? So it was actually something very natural to do. And uh, yeah, and then we just did it. So it was a two-step two approach. We first uh, had the partners in or all partners in, and then we moved on to, to the employees. And for anyone listening to this, running a firm like yourself, I mean, what, what have what have the benefits been of, of doing that? You know, what, what, how has it helped you as a firm? There is obviously some that really take a lot of ownership in this. And they're really proud owners of a share in the company. So I guess for some, it really is, is a, nice, uh, a nice benefit or a nice factor. So I don't know anybody that told me, yeah, because of this, I'm at h and or because I couldn't join, I'm, I'm leaving. So it's not that, I, I wouldn't say it's a complete game changer, but it just adds into the picture. And I think on the, on the upsides, we've always been very transparent with our numbers, et cetera, because that would be the obvious upside that you get like full transparency on the company numbers. But this we give anyhow to, to anybody in the company. But um, it just gives them, I guess, for some, it's also a bit of a different perspective, more an entrepreneurial. So I'd say there is no downsides and just upsides. I think that makes a lot of sense, Stefan. And I love your point, the benefits in terms of actually people feel invested in in the success of the firm because you know, H&Z is one consultancy. There are many others that people could move to if they wanted. But to your point, if actually people are financially invested, they own a part of the business, actually, it helps with that growth in the firm, that retention, probably client work as well. You know, someone's going to work later and put a better job into something that they have a link to at the end of it, I, I imagine. What has, I guess, you mentioned it hasn't led to people leaving or sort of people who haven't been able to board in are still there. What has just the general feedback been then? What, what is it that people say, you know, this is why I love being part of that? Is it just the financial incentive and the growth that they can have with it? Or have there been, I guess, any other fringe benefits that you hadn't expected? No, I'd say it's more, the, most of all, it's the emotional factor. Owning part of the business you're dedicating your work life to. So I guess that's that's above all. Of course, the, the dividend's nice, and it has been even in uh, 2020, which we were COVID-stricken, uh, we paid out a small dividend. So it's you're obviously much better off than just bringing money to the bank, and you also have some uh, the the share price increase uh, as well. You're benefiting from, but I'd say most of all, it's the emotional aspect. And once a year, we have a. Uh, with all shareholders meeting, and that's also something very special, 
I guess. Fantastic. And I've got to ask this just because, again, some of my listeners will be listening and being a little cynical. What what have the downsides been? Have Has there been anything that you hadn't expected? Well, I guess the only downside I could think of would obviously be that you have dozens of people that want to discuss the fate of the company. And now I'm shareholder. I can. It's like, you know, this from the large corporations, the people with one share and then they raise the voice. So we have a governance model that makes sure that this is not happening. So we only discuss stuff that uh, you need to hand in up front. And we have a, a, a committee that represents different shareholder perspectives. So you have the, the old partners that are soon to leave the company. You have the, the board as a, a shareholder perspective, the, the HNZ executive board. And you have the young partners, the new ones. And you have the employees. They have their own representatives. So whatever is, whenever there is some critical discussions, they're happening in this group. And out of this group, then there might be a resolution or something that's up for decision. But we don't have like, uh, in German, we have the word basis demokratisch. So like everybody is discussing anything. We've had this in the very beginning briefly, but then we make clear. And there is also um, the operational agent set group, which is run by an executive board. So even if your owner... Now, for example, we won't discuss with you where our next additional location will be or something like that, as long as it really doesn't get into huge investments. I like this sort of way you deal with that. And I think helpful for anyone thinking about this as well. I think the balance also of, I, I like the balance of the old partners, the kind of management team, the new partners and and the employees, because those four groups will have very differing views. I guess, you know, to your point, like like politics the older people have a very different view to the younger people. And actually, you need to balance those to lead a firm. I want to turn, and we've we sort of covered the firm, we mentioned around sort of that continental Europe location, Stefan. And you are one of my first guests from what we'll call continental Europe. And I, I'm going to avoid a debate about England and whether we are European or not. That's for a different podcast. But I'd, I'd love to understand a bit more about the market. Because I, you know, having worked in the UK, I understand the UK. I've had guests from the US. But I'd be really interested in understanding how consulting works across continental Europe. And actually, I mean, maybe start with a really obvious question. Is is there a continental European market or is it very country specific? And actually, how do you balance some of those projects where I imagine things do go cross borders because of you know the nature of sort of those integrated companies in different European states? Yes and no, <laughs> to answer your question, I guess. For certain aspects, there is a pan-European market. So if you talk about very specific boutique topics, or if you talk about uh, large strategic consulting topics, then usually would be MBB. For them, it's, it's more or less like one market. But as soon as it comes to classical management consulting, there's also some implementation piece attached to it. I guess we still have very local or regional markets. So and 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 in my thinking, so if I look at it clockwise, UK is definitely a, a market in its own. From our perspective, not a too difficult market, but uh, obviously that depends. Then you have Nordics, then you have um, well Eastern Europe, which is still a very small market. You have the you have uh, Italy, Greece, Spain. So it's probably one Southern European consulting cluster. Then you have France being an, an entity of its own, so to speak, with probably part of the, the uh, 
yeah, part of Belgium and the, the French-speaking part, obviously. And then you have something like the Benelux. And then you have the Dach market, Germany, Austria, Switzerland. So in, in the center, that's kind of how we look at the market. And in these markets, you have different ranges of, of fees or yeah, what is, what is expected, but you also have cultural differences. So for example, if I look at the Nordics market or especially the Swedish, they're very much linked to academia very often. So for consultants, it's clear that they, some even also teach at the universities or they're close to universities. While as in Germany, it's, it, it would be a market of its own, but the classical consulting market is not too linked too much to academia. There's some, some exceptions from the, the founder's age when professors from universities set up their own consultancies, but nowadays there is not too much, too much link there. And there is obviously big cultural differences. So I would never send a German team to France and uh, vice versa. So that's why we set up a, an alliance of European consultancies, the Transformation Alliance, because even like German clients know that when they have an issue in France, they need a French consulting team they can't send over Germans. And so... I'm going to ask about the transformation like shortly because obviously that's where that link with the Q5 team um, comes from. But if if I'm not going to start some sort of political crisis here, Stefan, why wouldn't you send a German team to France and why wouldn't you send a French team to Germany? Well, it's just uh, our approach to difference uh, to business and conversation is just very different. And you can ask anybody that works, for example, like Airbus. Whenever you have a French German team, there is just so many differences, the way we approach things or challenges and the way we communicate, it is, it is very, very, how shall I say, very delicate or very complicated. And I'm not judging here. It's just, it's just different ways. It's like skiing and snowboarding. Both are fine, but they're different. And you cannot snowboard like you ski and the other way around. And we've had plenty of these experiences and and we figured what works best for us, speaking the language of the client. So if it's a, a, a French client, then we bring in the expertise we have, but the proposal is written by the French. If it's a German client, it's the other way around. It makes a lot of sense. And I have one, because obviously this is something that we discuss a lot uh, as well. And I have very good uh, French friends, but I prefer not building proposals with them, but it's either they make it or I make it, but it's not, not a joint exercise. And I've, I've, what comes in my mind uh, with the approach to consulting. So imagine you bought a new house and there is this empty white wall and you think, well, the, a picture would be nice there. And if you invite a French and you are French, you would debate about the idea why people put pictures on the wall and and uh, that this is actually that this is what makes humans human, that art plays a big role in humanity and, and for the development of humankind, etc. And you will hardly talk about the real picture, but you'll talk about the philosophy behind it. If you were a German and you ask for a German consultant, the guy will come with a bunch of nails or, or screws and screwdriver and say, OK, how big do you want it? Where do we want me to put it? What structure is the wall made of? And he'll take out the tools and nail it in. So that's kind of the difference. And obviously, with that perspective, it drives you nuts. If they're just talking about the picture, yeah, damn, but just put the picture in there. But it's, it's all about building trust. For them, this is about building trust. And of course, I 
understand this on an, on an abstract level, but in a daily conversation, it can be very cumbersome because you're invited and you have a philosophical discussion over coffee and I'm like, damn, I want to do business. But that's the way they do business. And, and the other way around. I mean, for them, sometimes we're just brutes. I think that has very eloquently explained the cultural differences between French and German business for our listeners better than I think I ever would have been able to, Stefan. I'm going to borrow that because I'm sure it will at some point come in handy. And maybe that's the starting point for the Transformation Alliance, because I think, like you say, it, when you explain the challenge, it makes a lot of sense. It does feel like quite a, a unique approach, though. And I think the thing that's most fascinating for me is how long that alliance has been going. Because, you know, to use your example, instead of all debating that, you know, what picture goes on the wall, you've said you're all going to start a decorating firm or an interior design firm, which in some ways you might think removes the problem, but in other ways just changes the location of the problem. Because instead of talking about the you know, philosophy of art, you're talking about the philosophy of painting and decorating. Tell me about actually the genesis of the Transformation Alliance and, and how you've been able to, with your partner firms, make it work so well for as long as you have. It originated in France because our friends from Kia, they, they more and more got the, got the request that they need to work internationally and not just in France, obviously, because the large French corporations, they're all over the globe as well. So... So, for example, Danone was a big client or still is a big client of them. And they had projects in Latin America. They had projects in other parts of Europe. They very much liked what Kia did. So they wanted their help in those other countries as well. So for them, it was kind of, okay, how could we go international? And anybody in consulting for longer knows you can spend a lot of money without any effect in building up international offices. Or even after 10 years, they don't really pay off. So it's a delicate balance. And Kea had the idea they wanted to start on their own. They went together with a Swedish company. They were the founding partners. And we joined not too late after that because we wanted to build up an office in Paris for our Airbus uh, clients. They always asked, where is your office? And we said, yeah, in, in Munich. But they, yeah, but that's Germany. Where is your office? So they wanted an office in France. And that was for us the idea. We, we had bought a small company, obviously too late. So all good people had already left and uh, we spent some money and burned some money and we figured, okay, this is not, not the way to go in France. So we, we then teamed up in the alliance and soon after the Italians, MBS joined and then Q5 uh, in the UK. And there is now another aspirant in, in Spain in the picture. And for us, it's more, it's on, on common values. It's on personal relationships that really drive this forward, most of all. And we've, uh, we've institutionalized with very little institutions, but we have like once a year, we call it the Transforum, where in total 100 people, so obviously not, not enough space for anybody but to come together, but, but around 100 people, so 20 from every company, we, we meet somewhere in Europe. We exchange ideas, concepts, and even with nascent topics like uh, data analytics or stuff like that, it's very good to see what everybody's doing and, and uh, is there shortcuts and can you learn from each other. And we also have what we call a YTA, the Young Transformation Alliance. So it's the youngsters, they meet on a, on a quarterly basis in one of the locations and they exchange knowledge, but also visit clients. So for example, they went to BMW in Munich to really get an idea what the others are doing and learning from each other. And the whole idea is around facilitating exchange and facilitating cooperation. 
And sometimes there is also projects we run together in joint teams. More often is that we add content to one of the projects, which is then run by another team. So, but, but that's, that's kind of how it works. Plus we have what we call a think tank, the Transformation Institute, where we develop new stuff. And we have the saying, uh, steal with pride and care to share. So it means whatever you develop in your company, give it to the others. And even if they don't give it to you, if they take it, that's fine as well, because it's, I mean, knowledge doesn't get less if you share it. That's the idea behind it. I love that idea and and very much believe in it, Stefan. And it may just be it works in that way, but how do you manage sort of, I guess, the mechanics of, like you say, if Kia have got a project in France, do they bring you in as a kind of consulting partner for that content piece? Is there a kind of gentleman's agreement that you won't pitch for work in France and they won't pitch for work in Germany? How, how do you manage, I guess, those commercial aspects so it becomes collaborative, not competitive? Yeah, I guess we have what we call a small, well, so to speak, a small rule book or four types of projects we are, we are running. And um, of course, there is a, how would you say, there is an agreement that we don't compete in each other's markets. Yeah. There might be, and, and I mean, this is obvious, there might be, especially with international clients, they ask us to do something in France. But for example, we've had a, a, a large steel conglomerate and they had their facility in, among many, they had one large facility in France. So for us, it was just natural uh, to ask Kea to do this piece of work because we, we, okay, we have consultants that speak French, but it's not being French. And it's a very different approach. So for us, it was clear, okay, I'd rather give away a piece of the cake, but do an awesome job then keep the cake and do an okay job. And that's that's kind of the motivation. Of course, you need to let go sometimes something. But on the other side, it was always always worthwhile. And of course, you look at it uh, in, in terms of what goes around, comes around. But so far, we've had no foul play. And I mean, this is like in any relationship. If you expect foul play or you think, then you need to address it. You need to sort it out. And then you you just move on in a good sense. It makes a lot of sense. And, and to your point, it's that mindset of there's more than enough to go around and working together makes more, not less. It's growing the cake. It's not sharing exactly. the cake. Yeah. And maybe to that example, someone listening might think, well, you've got these firms all over Europe and you're all at the moment individual boutiques. Given you work so well together, why don't you all just come under one corporate structure and become the Transformation Alliance? Has that ever been floated? And I guess, why, why have you decided against that? Um, there is a complication behind that. The idea has been floated, definitely. There is a complication behind it because of the ownership structures that are not everybody structured the way we are, where we could have like a, a vote, so to speak. So this has been in, indeed a complicated issue so far, and we have not been able to solve that. It's not that we, at the moment, we don't push for it. There was a time five years ago where we pushed for it, but then there was some vetoes. And obviously, in any collaboration, so 80% of our business is in our core markets. So there is plenty of partners that don't on a daily basis have to do with the transformation alliance. So for them, it's rather like, okay, why should we and give up something? What do I get in, in return? So it really depends a bit on the, the level of interaction we have. That's why we're building on the YTA 
to foster that collaboration in all facets. Makes sense. And, and yes, that YTA, we, I didn't touch on it, but I think a great example also of building for the next generation. Like you say, actually, these are the people who will be le- leading your businesses in 10, 20 years time. And actually, them knowing each other is a great thing. Not least, I guess, culturally understanding and having empathy for different cultures, how different people interact is only going to help people as their careers develop. With these, Like you say, when you're working with global clients, you need to know how the German and French put up pictures if you're from the UK. Definitely. So I think last topic for today, Stefan, and, and thank you. I you know, appreciate it. it's first thing on Monday morning. So thank you for giving me your time at, right at the start of the week. And, and this is really for anyone listening in Germany. And, and again, is much because it's an area you know, in terms of how to get into the industry, I don't know a whole lot about. I know how that works over here in the UK, but I'm really fascinated for our, our listeners in Germany. Also, I guess for anyone who might be looking to move to Germany, you mentioned sort of you're from Austria, there'll be others around the world who who can speak German and want to move there. And I guess I'd love to start by just understanding what the German career market looks like, particularly at those junior levels. You know, my maybe naive understanding is it's very academics focused. When I spoke to German people before, there's almost you have to have a PhD before you get into an industry like this. Now, I don't know if that's an old view or if it's, you know, if it's changing, but you're living this market, you're working this you market. You must have been talking to old people, I guess. <laughs> I won't say yes or no, because I don't want to offend people, Stefan. You tell me what's the modern day. No, I guess it, it. there is a shift in the market and a change. Obviously, there is still... Having a PhD definitely isn't, isn't a bad thing. Now, does it pay off? I don't think. Pays better to be in consulting the two or three years before, if you look at the lifetime revenue, but did change a lot. So we even work with people that do their bachelor, then they come for one or two years and then they go out and do a master's in whatever, usually an MBA, but also other topics. And I guess this is the big shift in the market. Just because I'm curious, how out of date is my knowledge and what's driven that shift? Because there, my understanding is there was a time where that PhD was the kind of the gold standard. So what would you, you've obviously been in, you know, in business for those last 20 years. What has driven that change? I guess if you go back, if you go by like 20 years or 25 years. So if you look at the consulting overall, consulting was much more and only strategy consulting, so to speak. So sooner or later than classical process consulting came up, but it doesn't really help to have like this big or huge academic pedigree. It's more, more of a hindrance if you're doing a process assessment or process analysis for a topic. So you don't need the whole academic burden. And I guess that probably this is uh, something and the market broadened, the market grew, of course. Now you have consulting in all facets. And on the other side, knowledge also. I mean, there is this democratization of knowledge. So I mean, whatever typologies you have, whatever you need, um, you can all look it up. Now you're even having ChatGPT helping you. And and if you look at consulting today, I mean, MBB, of course, they, they usually come every two, three years with a new big concept, uh, just uh, called another one beyond budgeting, it's now called for CFOs. So they come up with a new topic every two, three years. But in the end, if you look at what is really the differentiator, it's not so much these models, but it's what you actually are able to implement. So the differentiation is not the concept, but it's in the implementation. Do you make it happen? Are you able to change the mindset of your employees and your company? 
it's not just picking the right concept up front. And that really changed. And I guess clients understood these and as well consulting companies understood these. So it's much more important to have people skills, being able to work with people and you don't need the whole academic burden, so to speak. It makes a lot of sense, Stefan. I, I, you've probably answered my other question around this, which was the why you employ people and then you send them out to do that master's or MBA after you know, one, two, three years. I, I'm assuming it's that is it gives them the people skills and the how to deliver projects, how to work with people, and then add that academic sort of And then it's more as- targeted. And then they, they understand how does a client challenge really look like? And not just based on a case study. And how does it feel like? And what is going to help me if I want to stay in this profession? So it's a much different understanding. And therefore, they can study with much more focus. No, it makes a lot of sense. Last one, just because you mentioned it earlier around the different examples of putting the picture on the wall. If someone wants to move to Germany for their career in consulting, this is, is there anything that they should be thinking about? I don't know, be it sort of skills, be it qualifications, be it just experience. We'll take language as a given here to make that transition a success. Anything about German business culture that you found people maybe surprised about when they first land, take take back to your house metaphor and anything else in that house that someone really needs to think about? I guess what always helps and what I recommend anybody is doing some internships before. In consulting, obviously, so you know what to expect. And if you're not from Germany, but you plan moving here and, and it's probably still two, three years from now, try to get an internship. Because that also that answers many of those questions, depending on the cultural background you're coming from. My hypothesis also would be go for a larger city. That makes it also easier. And language is an issue, but not like to the full extent. So if you don't speak German fluidly or business German, that's no longer an issue. It depends on the consulting company you're applying for. I'm inferring that's because business English is the default, but why? I'm good. I don't want to assume. Is that the reason? Yes, because more and more companies, business English is the default, especially the larger ones. And they themselves, there is not just... All, so, for example, if you do a workshop at Siemens, the probability they have only Germans in the room is very little. So you end up speaking English anyhow. Now, with smaller companies like the one to 500 million, many are just located in Germany and they, their international business is more export. So there you really need to speak German. And it's not that they couldn't speak English or they will do in a workshop, but like to get in touch with people and connecting, it really helps to speak the language. But it's really, there is ample of room for consultants out there that don't speak fluent German, but still want to come to Germany. Amazing. Well, Great to hear that my assumption there is incorrect, Stefan, as, as you say. And actually, for anyone listening, thinking that that probably opens a door that they didn't know about. Munich as well as a lovely city. I've only been once, but yeah, Should it, come is a, more often. it is a lovely yeah. city. Nice yeah, in any season, not just in September, October. Well, we were actually there for, I think it was spring, there's summer fest, I believe we were, we were there for. But maybe, maybe that's one for after the podcast. So Stefan, this has been fantastic. And I, I've just got two wrap-up questions. These are things I ask all my guests. So I love to hear the differences and similarities. First one is about books. And, and it's quite simply, what, what's the book or books that have either had the biggest impact on you or you've found yourself giving to, to your team and colleagues most often? Uh, it's The Seven Habits by Stephen Covey. I'm not sure if one of your podcasts guests already mentioned that, but it's really one of, I guess, the most remarkable book for, for any career, so to speak, but definitely for a business career. 
Fantastic recommendation. It was, funnily enough, I distinctly remember Adrian Betteridge recommending it on episode three. So you're in good company there, Stefan. But yes, it's. I think the other thing... So it's a refresher, so to speak. Yeah. I think it's also fascinating what books have impacted most people and coming back to, you know, because that book's also very old as well. And I think sometimes in today's world where there's hundreds of books released every you know, month or year, coming back to those books is so important. I, I'm just curious, when did you read it? When in your sort of life or career journey did you first read it? It's actually, read it? I, I was... I got in touch, I hope I'm not mistaken, but I got in touch when I studied in the US. So, mm. 95. Interesting. And then I is hope, that something... I hope, to be honest, I hope it was out by then. I think it came out much before that, so I think you're okay yeah, so there. So I'm, I'm on the safe side, but it, I definitely <laughs> was in the US. I did some projects later on in the US, but I guess it was, it was in my studies when I got in contact with it. Fascinating. Well, I think, yeah, great, a great book for anyone listening, thinking of getting into consulting to, to read as well. And then this final question, and, and this may be new things we haven't covered or a wrap up of others, but you, you have three people in front of you. One is the analyst who you've just taken from their bachelor's degree. One is sort of four or five years in, let's say somebody's come back from that master's degree, they're kind of in the middle of those grades. And then one is just approaching partner. And the question is just what one piece of advice would you give to each? Well, it's all about the client. Focus on the client. So obviously, as an analyst, you have plenty on your mind and you need to please the partner, you need to please the project manager, etc. But always focus on the client because this is, if you want to make career in consulting, then this is, and that's also for the, for the second piece uh, or for the second role, so to speak, or the senior consultant, early project manager, same thing, focus on the client, win the client. If you win the client, you win everything. And for the partner, definitely. No clients, only a small basket to the picnic. Yeah, <laughs> Stefan, this, this picnic metaphor is what I'm going to take into my week because I, I love it. And yes, as someone who usually goes to sports, it's been quite refreshing to use non-sport metaphors. And I'm sure some of my listeners have probably rejoiced in the fact it's not about football or rugby or something else. So the picnic is important. And I guess, you know, I don't know if your clients come to the picnic, but it's, it's the same piece, isn't it? Is you've, got, you've got to think about those people you're impacting and what that means for them because it is a people business. Stefan, this has been fantastic. For anyone who's listened to this, wants to find out more about yourself, wants to find out more about H&Z, where would you point them to? Where can they get in touch? Well, LinkedIn is not just the source of inspiration, but also a source of contact. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, I will put your LinkedIn profile in the show notes. I'll also put a link to H&Z as well, so people can find the website. And otherwise, all that's left to say is thank you very much today. I've really enjoyed it and enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you, Nick. Even if it was a Monday morning, uh, it was a great conversation. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, Stefan. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Climbing Consulting. If you have any guest recommendations, comments, ideas, thoughts on how I can make this show better for you, just drop me an email. It's nick at createengage.co.uk and I really look forward to hearing from you.